in a sermon on 2 Corinthians 8.5 on April 5th, 1891 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England. Charles Spurgeon made the following exhortation to his church. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel most glad that you have not. If you had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, It is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it's right for everyone. And then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. As I have already said, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for your not joining it if you were the Lord's, nor need your own faults keep you back. For the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold For Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. Brothers and sisters, it's with that heart that is expressed over 200 years ago in the heart of our brother Charles Spurgeon that I bring to you this morning and Lord willing over the next several weeks. Because imperfect as she is, the church is in fact the dearest place on earth to us. I wonder if that describes how you feel regarding the church or your relationship with the church. If anything, this whole past year and a half of pandemic has certainly tested the feeling and relationship to the local church, even among the most godly among us. While our church, by God's kindness, ceased publicly gathering for a relatively short period of time, We have spent the last year and a half having our schedules altered and our commitments tested and our hearts distracted. With a volatile political season, civil and cultural unrest, along with health concerns related to COVID-19, and many of us have had just one crazy year and a half. And now as we begin to recover somewhat from the reeling of the last 12 to 18 months, I feel like it's important for us to stop and rediscover the centrality of the local church in our lives as Christians. Maybe some among us are are kind of disoriented, and if we're honest, we found the pandemic detrimental to us spiritually. We look back on it and feel a measure of conviction about our sinful neglect of the local church. Our habits and our routines were upended and our regular commitment to be with God's people began to wane or weaken or maybe even cease. That's true for some of our members even now. But many, if not most of us, saw the Lord use the pandemic to reestablish 
the centrality of the local church in our hearts. We were already committed to being together, but even a few weeks off showed us how vulnerable we were. And so we plugged back in right away as quick as we were physically able to do so. And it hasn't been perfect, but the pandemic did help us to realize how important gathering with the local church is. And others of us are somewhere in the middle. We're kind of in and out. You may have been attending for a while, but never made a formal commitment. Or you made a formal commitment, and that commitment has been severely tested. But regardless of where you find yourself this morning, I hope that this brief series will guide all of us into a reignited love for and commitment to the local church. Because as I'm going to argue over the course of the next four sermons, the local church is not a unique add-on to the Christian life. It is essential and central to the Christian life. So over the next four Sundays, I'll be doing a brief sermon series on the church. However, my focus is going to be quite narrow and specific. I'm not going to talk about everything about the church. Good grief, we couldn't do that in 14 weeks, 40 weeks, let alone four weeks. So it's going to be very narrow. What I want to do is to convince you and have this knowledge imparted to the depths of your soul by the Spirit of God that being a vital, committed, present, and contributing member of a local church, for most of you it's this one, but if you're not yet a member of a local church, some local church, is essential to the Christian life. The Christian life cannot exist without it. So, essential for what? Well, I'm glad you asked. Essential for four things, and these are going to be the topics of our four sermons moving ahead. First of all, the local church is the place for proving your faith. That's the theme we've got this morning, and I've really got in mind regular attenders of our local church who are not yet members. That's, it's not the exclusive audience, but it's the primary one that would have the most immediate impact. But it's good for all of us to be reminded of these things. The local church is the place for proving your faith. Number two, the local church is the place for prioritizing your faith. And I have in view here our regular but somewhat inconsistent members. What I'm stressing there is a priority, a first-placeness that is to be in our lives regarding the local church, and we'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. The third is the local church is the place for protecting your faith. And there I have those who are in the language of Hebrews 12 in the habit of not gathering. And then finally, number four, the local church is the place for practicing your faith. And that's for us regular and consistent members of the church to think, well, just because maybe I come to most things or try to be deeply involved, that I want to I reorient our thinking a little bit, even for the most committed and regular among us. So that's where we're going the next four weeks, proving, prioritizing, protecting, and practicing our faith all in the context of the local church. So we begin this morning by looking at this statement. The local church is the place for proving your faith. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by proving your faith? I mean that the local church is the place where you and I prove that our faith in Christ is real. The local church is the place where you and I prove that our faith in Christ is real. It's where you show yourself to be the actual Christian you say you are. 
you join the team. You're on the team. And you play on the team. So we know you're on the team. If you're not showing up for practice, not going out for the team, you're not playing in the game and you're not on the team. At least no one should think you're on the team. You might claim you're on the team, but you're not on the team. Mark Dever, well-known pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., has said that when he, he has the opportunity to speak to college students, college students on college campuses about the local church, he often begins his talk in an intentionally provocative way with this sentence. If you are not a member of a church you regularly attend, you may well be going to hell. That statement usually quiets the room, and for good reason. <laughs> Mark goes on to explain what he means by that statement. He says, I don't mean for a second that you literally have to have your name on a membership role in a church somewhere to go to heaven. I believe in justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. At the same time, in the New Testament, it seems the local church is there to verify or falsify our claims to be Christians. Do you want to know that your life in Christ is real? Commit yourself to a local group of saved sinners. Do it for years. And I think you'll find out, and others will too, whether or not you love God. The truth will show itself. I don't care how much you cry during singing and preaching. If you do not live a life marked by love toward others, the Bible has no encouragement for you to think you're a Christian. None. So Mark's point in that quote, and my point in this sermon is that unless we are vital, committed, present, contributing members of local churches, the Bible gives us no warrant for thinking we are Christians. Now, Christian culture may tell you that you can be a Christian. Christian radio may tell you you can be a Christian. And your misinformed conscience may tell you you can be a Christian, but the Bible doesn't give you that comfort. The local church is the place that we prove our faith is genuine. It's not where we demonstrate, okay, I'm joining a church, I'm going to become a Christian by joining a church. No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying you demonstrate you are a Christian by joining a church, not the other way around. Church membership doesn't magically make anybody a Christian. Church membership is designed to verify that we are what we say we are. So, Pastor Mark, you've piqued my curiosity. I'm interested in this. I need some Bible underneath that, and I'm happy to supply that with you uh, for the next several minutes together. We're going to look at four reasons why I believe that the local church is essential for proving our faith. Number one, and I want you to follow the logic here because we're going to follow the same logic across all four points. I'm just going to build one on another. Number one, Christians are devoted to following Jesus. And you can't follow Jesus without membership in the local church. Christians are devoted to following Jesus. And you can't follow Jesus without membership in the local church. Now, I know what often comes is a, is a regular objection to that reality. Pastor Mark, you're saying I can't follow Jesus apart from membership in the local church. But I'm a member of the universal church. I do not need to be a part of the local church. I'm part of the universal church. Okay. You are a part of the universal church, I hope. But the way that you demonstrate that you're a part of the universal church is you're attached to a local one. The New Testament isn't written to the universal church. 
The New Testament is written to local churches. But a local church is the local, visible, tangible, real-world expression of the universal church. Here's my point. There would be no universal church without local churches. No one would know what the universal church is. You'd walk up and say, I'm a member of the universal church. Where's that? Hollywood? What part of the universe is the universal church located in? Well, I'm just a member of it. You're not? No. The universal church, biblically, is expressed through the local church. That's the way in which the universal church is demonstrated to be a reality. So only those who are members of local churches should have comfort that they are members of the universal one. Michael Horton says it this way, The visible church is where you find Christ's kingdom on earth, and to disregard the king is to disregard or to disregard the kingdom is to disregard the king. So being a Christian means following Jesus, right? I hope we all agree on that. And you can't follow Jesus without membership in a local church. Now, I need to show you that. Chuck Colson says, Of course every believer is a member of the universal church, but for any Christian who has a choice in the matter, failure to cleave to a particular local church is a failure to follow Christ. Now, is he right? Is he right? I think he is. Because in the New Testament, here's what you find. Christians are members of churches. That's what you find. Exclusively. This is the expectation of Jesus and the mission of the apostles. So let me show it to you quickly. And it's going to be almost for some of us, it's going to be like, I can't believe I never saw that before. Like, it's right on the surface of the Bible. Why did I not get this? Well, because we don't have strong ecclesiology in the church in America. We don't have an understanding of what the church is, how it functions. We have an understanding of some of the responsibilities that we're supposed to be doing as Christians, but we don't think church-centrically as a culture. Part of it's our Western individualism that has infected us with a worldliness that is contrary to the New Testament. And yes, individualism is worldly. Just because it's American doesn't mean it's not worldly. It's a part of American worldliness. And so we have to recognize that and, 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 and confront that in ourselves. So I want to show it to you from a very basic look at two passages. First of all, and I hope you've got your Bibles because we're going to be looking at these passages. I want you to see them with your own eyes in your own Bible, either or your physical Bible or on your phone. So let's look at Matthew 28 first, and then we're going to come back to Acts 2. Matthew 28. Very familiar words to us. Jesus Last commission or great commission, as it's sometimes called, his marching orders for the apostles after his resurrection. And here's what he says to them, familiar words to us, no doubt. And Jesus came, verse 18, and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right, so what are the marching orders? I've got all authority. Apostles, go. Go out. Make disciples. Preach the gospel. Lead people to repentance and faith, and then baptize them, and then teach them to observe. Now, the question becomes, How does the New Testament think about that command to teach disciples? So is it just that Christians gather in little groups of other Christians and they teach each other? Because that seems to be 
what is going on in the ministry of Jesus, right? He gathers his disciples, they're with him, and he teaches them. And many people think that's church, just meeting together or being together with some Christians over a period of time. And I would say that's not wrong, it's just reductionistic. It's not the full picture of all the rest of what the New Testament gives us concerning how this command is played out. And I want, you to sh- I want to show you again how this command is played out. So we start where? Book of Acts. This is the end of the Gospels, at least the Gospel of Matthew. So how are the disciples going to act on this? What are they going to do? How, how did they interpret Jesus' words here? Well, let's see how they interpreted Jesus' words. Go back to Acts chapter 2 with me. And we see exactly how they responded. Derek already summarized it helpfully for us, so I won't spend a whole lot of time doing that. But Peter preaches the sermon on Pentecost. After being filled with the Spirit, the Spirit comes at Pentecost. Peter preaches the sermon and a gospel-centered exposition of Psalm 16, talking about Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, calling people to him for forgiveness of sin. People are cut to the heart, and they say to Peter, what are we going to do? And Peter great commissions them. He great commissions them. What does he do? He, baptize, he, he, he makes disciples by repentance and faith. He baptizes them, and then he adds them to something, to a local church in Jerusalem. They were added, verse 42, or verse 41, to the membership of that local church. And it gives us a number, 3,000, 3,000 people. So this is not just getting added to the, lo- to the universal church. It is that, but it's more than that. It's them getting added to the local church in Jerusalem. How do we know that? Because of verses 42 through 47. They stayed. They lived there. They engaged with each other day by day. They cared for one another. They loved each other. They had, in effect, covenanted to one another to be a local church together. And this is how they were taught to observe all that Jesus commanded, right? Because it says, first of all, in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching in the context of that church. So in the New Testament, the Christian life looked like this. Individuals received Christ, they were baptized, they were added to the church, and then they devoted themselves to gathering to hear the apostles' teaching. That is, that's where they learned to do everything that Christ had commanded them to do. And they also oriented their lives around other church members, their meals, their prayers, their schedules, their financial and property decisions, their provision for widows. That's a Christian. That's a Christian according to the New Testament. Therefore, failure to join and meaningfully contribute to a local church in normal situations. I'm not talking about pioneer missionary situations, um, which is why the Ethiopian eunuch and things like that don't really wash with the rest of the New Testament. It's a pioneer, ongoing, brand new missionary situation, okay? We're not talking about normative Christian life here. There are obviously Christians who are persecuted in other countries, who are perhaps in unique situations of life that really hinder them by virtue of no real choice of their own from being a member of a local church. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about shut-ins. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about normal Christian living, okay? We can't take all the exceptions and then say, yeah, but all those exceptions apply to me, a normal, healthy person. In 
his characteristically pointed yet humorous way, I'm going to give you another Charles Spurgeon quote that underscores the point that failure to join a local church is disobedience to Christ. Here's what he says. I know there are some who say, well, I've given myself to the Lord, but I don't intend to give myself to any church. I say, now why not? And they answer, because I can be just as good a Christian without it. I say, are you quite clear about that? You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by being obedient? There's a brick. What's the brick for? It's made to build a house. It's of no use for the brick to tell you that it's just as good, good a brick while it's kicking about on the ground by itself as if it would be if it were part of a house. Actually, it's a good-for-nothing brick. So, you rolling stone Christians, I don't believe that you're answering the purpose for which Christ saved you. You're living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live, and you are much to blame for the injury that you do. This is why John Stott says an unchurched Christian is a grotesque anomaly. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person, for the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. Now, in Greek mythology, which I know you all no doubt read this weekend, Perseus was the son of Zeus who killed Medusa, the monster-like Gorgon who, with a head of hair consisting of snakes, remember her? You probably remember the story well. If anyone looked on Medusa, what happened? He would turn to stone. She would turn to stone, not Medusa herself, but the person looking on her. So when Perseus went to kill Medusa, he had to use his shield to look at her reflection so he could approach Medusa in her sleep and cut off her head. Of course, Perseus still can't look at her head, so he just stuffs it in a bag and wraps it up so he doesn't accidentally seize it. And then later on in the story, Perseus defeats the Kraken by taking Medusa's head out of the bag, holding it up for the sea monster to gaze upon, and the sea monster turns to stone. It's the famous scene depicted in a lot of ancient sculpture, in artwork, and even in a number of movies. Here's looking at you, Percy Jackson. It's rather grotesque when you think about it, carrying around a severed head in a bag, lifting up a head without its body, except it seems that when it comes to our Christian lives, we think that can exist. We think decapitation is kind of cool. Uh, some of us even think it's a positive good and beautifully spiritual. But too many Christians think they can have Jesus without the church. They want the head without the body. In essence, they want a decapitated Christ, which is, according to John Stott, a grotesque anomaly. See, a Christian, by definition, is one who follows Jesus and according to what we've seen in Matthew 28 and Acts 2, following Jesus means embracing the local church as a center of your devotion. But also, a Christian, by definition, doesn't just have a union with Christ, but by virtue of being in union with Christ, is in union with all of Christ's people. If God is your Father, all His people are your family. Galatians 3.26, In Christ you are all children of God through faith, for all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. He's writing to the local church at Galatia when he says that. Okay, 
So being united to Jesus means we're united to everyone else who's united to Jesus, which for the Galatians was all the members of that local church in Galatia that they were together with. Romans 12.5, again, Paul writing to the church at Rome, says, In Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So Paul says to the Roman Christians, who are part of the Roman church, being formed together into one body gives us an obligation. We belong to the rest of the body. It's impossible to be in Christ and not belong to Christ's people. Church is therefore not just a meeting we attend, it's a body we belong to. You belong to the other members, and your other, the other members belong to you as family. You're a member of the body of Christ, and you express that membership by belonging to the body of his local church. And then Matthew 25, verse 40, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. See, Jesus says that when we do things for our brothers and sisters, we are doing things for him. In serving our brothers and sisters, we serve him. So can you not see how so crucial to following Jesus means we follow and care for the people that he's united to, right? So this is what we see over and over in the New Testament. In fact, when Jesus confronts, or when, when Jesus confronts Saul, he says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me in Acts 8? Now why does he say that? Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus, he was persecuting the church. Persecute the church, persecute Jesus. Because Jesus is in union with the church. That's the logic. So that's the first point. I promise the other ones will be a tad bit shorter. All right? So the first one is, we gotta follow, if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to embrace local church membership because that's what we see in the early parts of the New Testament. Second point, Christians want to be assured of their salvation, and you can't be biblically sure of your salvation without membership in a local church. Christians want to be assured of their salvation, and you can't be biblically sure of your salvation without membership in a local church. The church, I want to show you, has a primary role in identifying and affirming true Christians. Churches don't make people Christians. We've already made that clear, I hope. We become Christians by the new birth. But churches are embassies of heaven, as Jonathan Lehman calls them, which Christ has tasked with affirming our heavenly citizenship. So if you're going to get a citizenship from another country, you've got to visit the embassy in that country. The United States has embassies all over the world. That's where we affirm that we're citizens of the United States. And so churches are like that as well. They are local embassies of the kingdom of heaven designed to give passports to Christians to identify who a true Christian is. Now, Baptists, Presbyterians, Anglicans... Different denominations might disagree on who exactly makes that pronouncement in the church, whether it's the whole congregation or the elders or a bishop acting on behalf of the congregation. We're Baptists by biblical conviction, so we believe that responsibility belongs to the congregation, the local congregation. But all agree that Jesus has given this authority to churches. So instead of handing out physical passports, what do churches do? We baptize and we, we give the Lord's Supper. And baptism is the front door in, and Lord's Supper is the ongoing way we sustain the membership in the local church. Now, I need to show you that in the Bible. So we're going to look at two passages in the Gospel of Matthew. So these are Jesus' really exclusive words on the local church that he gives in uh, the Gospels, and therefore they're mighty important because he doesn't talk 
about these things lightly. And when he brings it up as this is the one or couple only times where he really discusses this reality that's to come after he dies and rises again. So Matthew 16 is where we'll be first, and then we're going to look at Matthew 18. Now, Jesus is not establishing this reality yet. He's going to establish this reality at his death and resurrection, which is what he talks about right after this passage. But he's setting us up for what's to come here after he dies and rises. What's going to be the new normal for these disciples? And it's going to be local churches. Notice verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? This is a central moment right here. Verse 14, they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to him, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah or Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock... I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples, tell no one that he was the Christ. He just let them in on his divine secret of what this is all about. I'm going to build an unstoppable church. Now, this is what we learn from Jesus. He's giving the keys of the kingdom. We'll talk about what those are in just a second. He's giving the keys of the kingdom first to the apostles, right, to Peter, but by virtue of the New Testament through the churches that they plant because they're not going to be around forever. So in Matthew 16, Jesus teaches that the keys are used for this reason. Affirm right confessions of the gospel. Is that not what he does? He asks... Who do you say I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm building my church on that confession. And to you will be given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So what are the keys? The keys are saying, that's a right confession of the gospel. 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 That's That's what the keys are. First, Peter confesses whom Jesus is. Jesus affirms Peter's answer, promises to build his church, and then for that purpose gives Peter and the apostles some keys. Right? He says, that unlocks the door to the kingdom right there, that confession. That opens up the door to heaven, that confession. So what do these keys do? They bind and they loose on earth what is bound and loosed in heaven. Now, we don't talk like that anymore, so we might miss the meaning, but think of the keys as being like an embassy's authority to formally declare its home government's laws or decrees. Now, let's look at Matthew 18. Matthew 18 and verse 15. Jesus, again, picks up this idea. These are, to my knowledge, the only two places in the Gospels where Jesus uses the word church, ecclesia. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
and he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it shall be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So, not only in Matthew 16 does Jesus teach that the keys are there to confirm right confessions of the gospel, but he says in Matthew 18 that the keys are used to affirm true confessors of the gospel. So you've got the confession in Matthew 16, you've got the confessors in Matthew 18. And what we see in the New Testament is this is lived out in local churches, this command here. 1 Corinthians 5 calls for the kingdoms to be, keys to be exercised against a man who is living with his stepmother and refusing to repent. And he says, exercise the keys. Remove that person from communion. Not the physical local church, but the Lord's Supper. They are not walking in a consistent way with Jesus anymore. So listen, the Lord's Supper, as we'll talk about in coming weeks and as we'll observe tonight, is not for Christians who don't sin. The Lord's Supper is a sinner's meal. The Lord's Supper's for not for Christians who refuse to... Or sorry, I should say it this way. The Lord's Supper is not to be in the mouths of Christians who refuse to repent of their sin. That's the difference. We're, talking about, we're not talking about Christians who've ceased sinning. We're talking about Christians who've ceased repenting. That's a world of difference. That's a world of difference. And the way you know you're a Christian is you don't stop repenting. You don't stop repenting. Is this not what Martin Luther said in his first of his 95 theses? All of life is repentance. We don't stop repenting. So Jesus in Matthew 16 and in Matthew 18 hands the keys of the kingdom over to the apostles who hand it over to the local church as the ground for both acknowledging true confessing, confessions of the gospel. That's why we submit testimonies, read testimonies, vote on testimonies. And true confessors of the gospel, that is those who are living and seeking to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and gives them grounds to remove anyone from the church on the basis of that confession going awry or the confessor going awry. And this is the fearful thing. What Jesus says, it says, if they get that right, now churches can get it wrong. They can discipline for wrong reasons. They can, and, and that's, that's sin on the church's part. But if they get it right, the confession of this person is out of step with the gospel. The confessor is walking out of step with the gospel, and they refuse to repent of sin. They remove them from the church. Then what is bound on earth is bound in heaven. Jesus stamps it. That's what it teaches. That's what it says. That's what the New Testament functions like. Because it's an embassy of the kingdom as a local church that gives the keys and declares who the citizens of the kingdom are. Now, let me be clear. We can't say that all professing Christians who are not members of local churches are certainly not Christians. We simply can't say that they certainly are, biblically speaking. Our membership in a local church is that congregation's public testimony that your life gives evidence of the new life in Christ you profess to have experienced. And therefore, it serves as a means of your assurance. Because a group of Christians that are following Jesus and are committed to one another says, 
that's a right confession, that's a right confessor, welcome to the family. And now you're brought outside of yourself and you're like, praise the Lord, I don't have to be subjected to this constant inward scrutiny of myself. I don't have to say, am I a Christian? Am I a Christian? Am I a Christian? I have 200 brothers and sisters who've said, we think you're a Christian. you got a right confession of the gospel. You're living consistent with that as a repenting, believing sinner. We love you. You're in the kingdom, as far as we can tell. And that should be a great source of assurance. How many Christians just struggle in life, walking around, am I a Christian, am I not? Totally divorced from the means of assurance God has given them. The local church. The church is meant to say to you, we believe you're a Christian. Can you not see how it meant, it's meant to serve your assurance on your weakest days when you feel like, I don't think I'm a Christian. I mean, I just struggle with this and that. And yes, I, I, I love the Lord. I want to follow Him. Wait. I'm a member of Heritage Baptist Church. They said I was. Now, is that the only source of assurance? No. But it's meant to be a source of assurance when your soul is telling you other things. Your brothers and sisters can come along and encourage you and say, Brother, sister, I see more grace in your life than you do. That's why we need the local church. Another analogy that might be helpful for understanding a church's authority of the keys is the work of a, maybe a courtroom judge. So a judge doesn't make the law, right? At least we hope not. If they're a good judge, they shouldn't invent laws. But neither does he or she make a person innocent or guilty. But the judge possesses the authority on behalf of the state to interpret the law and then render an official judgment, guilty or not guilty. And so it is with the church's declarations. They're official. They represent the kingdom of heaven on earth. Sometimes churches make wrong judgments, as with ambassadors and embassies. Sometimes they do as well. Or judges in courts. Sometimes they do as well. But still, it's the job that Jesus has given to the churches. And now, how do churches render these official judgments? Churches bind or loose through those things that are ordained by Jesus. We call them ordinances. That's why we call them, because they're ordained by Jesus. They're things that Jesus told us to do. Baptism, Lord's Supper. Baptism comes first, as we just witnessed with our sister Cassie this morning. It's the front door into church membership. Those who gather in Christ's name baptize people into his name. And through baptism, we declare, I'm with Jesus. That's what Cassie was declaring this morning. And we declare, as her church family, this person is with Jesus. Both parties have something to say. And then the Lord's Supper follows. It's the regular family meal for members. Church membership, in one sense, simply means membership at the Lord's table. That's all membership really is in the New Testament. Since the Lord's Supper is how we recognize one another as believers on an ongoing basis. So... What do we think as, as Christians when we gather at the Lord's Supper tonight and some of our family isn't around? We wonder if they're walking with Christ and we, we're concerned. Because it's the family meal by which we're all saying, I'm still with Jesus, don't worry about me. But we worry about you. Ask members, we worry about you. Listen to what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake 
of the one bread. Partaking of the one bread shows that you are one body. That's what it does. We, we demonstrate that we are a body of Christ by taking the bread together. It's not our individual moments with Jesus over there tonight. It's our reaffirmation that we are in Christ and in His church. That's what the Lord's Supper is every single time we take it. It's not my own little meal with Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins, eat, drink, done. No, it's thinking, am I walking with Christ? Am I walking in fellowship with His church? Am I seeking to fulfill my covenant to this body? Am I, am I, am I working out my own salvation with fear and trembling? Am I, am I seeking to honor the Lord and my family? Am I, and then, then we look around and we take this meal together, symbolizing that we are one body. We're affirming each other as believers. And when, we, when someone is not walking in fellowship with the Lord, they're not to come to that table. That's what it means. We're exercising the keys of the kingdom. Again, different Christian denominations disagree on what exactly the communion bread represents, but we all agree that the Lord's Supper is a church meal by which the whole congregation affirms one another's membership in Christ's body. Eric Raymond puts it this way. Membership is a congregation's declaration to one another and to a watching world what a true confession and confessor of the gospel looks like. One of the primary responsibilities of the gathered congregation, that is the local church, is to evaluate the profession of faith in its prospective members and then to regularly evaluate it in the lives of their current members. In other words, the congregation, the members, declare to the watching world, this is a right confession of the gospel, and by virtue of their ongoing membership, we stand with this brother or sister in how they are representing Jesus in the world. Membership communicates the message of the gospel to a watching world. It is very important. Two more, very brief. Number three, Christians obey the commands of Jesus, and you can't obey the commands of Jesus without membership in a local church. Let's look at John chapter 14. John 14. John 14 and verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Turn to the next chapter, maybe on your same page, uh, John 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So who's Jesus describing as his people? He says, you want to know who my people are? They're people that obey my commands. All right, look at the people who are obeying my commands. Those are my people. Now, I want to say something crystal clear. Most of the commands in the New Testament by which Christ commands us to keep require local churches to keep them. All right? Here's another somewhat shocking statement. The New Testament wasn't written to Christians. The New Testament was written to churches with Christians in them. <laughs> All right, the primary audience of the letters of the New Testament is not individual Christians, it's churches. We have to keep that in mind. Of course the New Testament was written to Christians. But again, I'm trying to de-individualize us. Okay? I'm trying to not think it's just you know, me and Jesus here. It's us and Jesus. 
The New Testament was written to churches. Most of the letters of the New Testament were written to churches in Galatia and Ephesus and Corinth and Philippi. And all the instructions for how Christians were to live and obey Jesus were given in that context. Since the commands came in the context of the church, we need the context of the church to keep the commands. Do you understand that? That's what I'm trying to capture here. In fact, Derek Minton, our brother who read for us, also um, said in his recent class on the Trinity, um, he says, to sit down and read the Bible as a professing Christian who is not a member of a local church is to sit down and read a document that doesn't apply to you. It's true. It's true. It doesn't apply because it's not speaking to your category of people. It's speaking to church members. So what that should do is be like, oh, I need to, I need, I need to shore that up. So have you ever noticed that? It's actually somewhat impossible to keep the commands of God without committing ourselves to a local church. Consider just the following commands. Love one another. Seek peace and unity. Avoid strife. Care for one another physically and spiritually. Watch over one another. Hold one another accountable. Build one another up. Encourage one another. Edify one another. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Pray for one another. Correct one another. Submit to elders together. All those are given in context of local church letters. They're all commands by which the apostles are commanding us to keep what Jesus commanded us to do. And they're all in the context of the church. So which of those commands require deep and abiding relationship between fellow believers who regularly gather together in a local church? The question actually should be, which of those commands does not require such engagement? Because all of them do. There are none. They all require the local church. All these commands assume that Christians are regularly meeting together, discipling one another, holding one another accountable, and the only meaningful way to fulfill those commands is by carrying them out with a specific group of people, people with whom we regularly gather. So the bottom line is, in order to obey the commands of Jesus, we've got to be members of local churches. Fourthly and finally, Christians love what Jesus loves, and you can't love what Jesus loves without membership in a local church. As I've already said, once Christ saves us, he gives us a love for him and he gives us a love for his people, a love for them and a desire with them. How does Jesus feel about his church? Look at Ephesians 5 with me quickly. We're on the home stretch, I promise. Thanks for your patience and hanging with me. Ephesians chapter 5. And just, I love it. I love this passage. Not only what it teaches us about marriage, but because it shows that Christ's love is like a marriage, right? That's what marriage is all about, to demonstrate Christ's love for his people. I'm just going to read part of the passage. Matthew, or Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, by the washing of water with the word. So that in, so verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. How much does Jesus love his church? So much that he'd die for her. So much that he would cleanse her and make her beautiful so that on the day she is presented to him, she'll be a radiant bride. That's what we have to look forward to, brothers and sisters. But how are we to be That's just what Jesus does. But notice the first two verses of chapter 5. 
One of the reasons that Paul gives this illustration is to show this truth. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. What is he saying? Just as Jesus laid down His life for the church, you lay down your life for the church. Just as Jesus gave His life to the church, you give your life to the church. Is that not what he's saying? Imitate God. Be like God. That's what a Christian is. Like Christ. So Jesus loves the church. How much does he love the church? Boy, he was willing to inconvenience himself a little bit for it, wasn't he? How much are we willing to inconvenience ourselves? Some of us can't get out of bed. Some of us can't build our schedules and manage them enough to make central the local church. Christ died. And we need to imitate God and walk in love as Christ loved. Christ is continually paying attention to His church. And it doesn't say, therefore pastors be imitators of God. You guys pay attention to the church. Do we have a specific responsibility to oversee? Yes, you do too. We are all called to be imitators of God. And now, Christ is continually at work to cleanse us from sin, prepare us for eternity. Christ's love for the church is not flighty or fickle. He's committed. He's all in. He nourishes. He cherishes. He sustains. He protects His church. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus so loves the church, shouldn't we? If the church is at the center of His heart, shouldn't it be at the center of ours? If the church is on his mind, shouldn't it be on ours? If Christ devotes his life to take care of it, shouldn't we seek to devote our lives to play our part to take care of it too? Now, we're not Jesus. We're not the chief shepherd. Praise the Lord. He is the chief shepherd, right? But we have a part to play in his vineyard. And the greatest motivation we could ever find for being passionately committed to the local church is that Jesus is passionately committed to the local church. And he's passionately committed to us in that pursuit. I mean, there's no greater motivation than that. The same heart that beats in Christ for the church is beating inside of his people for the church. If we're being conformed to the image of Christ, Romans 8, 29, as his people... Would this not include an ever-deepening presence in, involvement with, and commitment to the local church? Can there be any question that part of being like Christ is loving what he loves? As one writer says, the church is the bride of Christ. He has sworn himself to her and to us. Should we not do the same? Well, in conclusion, and I've gone a little over time this morning, but I just want to leave us this will be, these are bullet, bullet points, no long ex- explanations. Um, just, just three words of encouragement based on this um, sermon for all of us. Um, first of all, if you are, have been attending a while at our, at, in our church and um, you're, you're not a Christian, I'm not asking you to join the local church, okay? I'm asking you to come to Christ, okay? Become a Christian. And then once you've embraced the Lord Jesus Christ... Pursue membership in the local church, whether it's somewhere else or here or whatever. We're not the only church. Praise the Lord. Plenty of good churches, even around our own city. 
Um, but if you are interested in taking this step and you say, you know what, I'm biblically convinced, I got I to join the church, then come talk to us, specifically talk to Pastor Thad, because in three weeks we're starting a new members class for our fall term. We do one in the spring, we do one in the fall usually. April, August 22nd, we're starting. There's a sign-up sheet in the lobby, but you can talk to Pastor Thad after the service if you're interested in being a part of that class. Taking that class just informs you of the mem- about church membership. It does not obligate you to membership. All right, you can step out at the end of the class and say, I'm just not ready. That's fine. It's totally cool. But uh, you can at least get information that way. So new class begins August 22nd. Sign up sheet in the lobby. Talk to Pastor Thad. He'll be teaching it if you want to take that particular step. Also, church family, I sent yesterday or Friday, one, one of the days, the, a Nine Marks journal that our brother Derek Minton has an article in. It's written for church members. And I sent a schedule out. There's copies, I think, Maybe all the hard copies of the journal are gone. There were about 10 of them out there. People probably snatched them up. There aren't. You can grab one if you want. There's schedules out there. And I would encourage you to incorporate into your devotions this month. I read one of the articles. It takes, I think, three minutes to read. They're two to three pages each on short paper. Really, really easy to read. Uh, I've created a schedule over the course of this month to read one article that's going to focus you on the centrality of the local church and ways you as a church member could be growing in this. It's a practical tool, incorporated into your devotions. Dads, incorporated into your families. Read them at dinner, maybe. Choose to use them as your family devotions for the month. Talk about it with your kids. Um, However it best works for you, just try to incorporate that. We want to encourage that throughout the month. And then finally, a couple book recommendations. We've got all these little Nine Marks books out there. Those are free. You can take these. We want you to take them. uh, I want to recommend two today. Why should I join a local church? Mark Dever, if you're in that category, pick one of those up. Why should I be baptized? Bobby Bobby Jameson, pick one of those up. Again, we're big fans of short things around here. That can be read pretty quickly. So I encourage you all to pick those up, and uh, may God bless us and help us as we seek to do what our Lord has taught us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word um, that leads us uh, to, to, to think biblically and to think according to your will and your ways and the things that you have intended for our good. Lord, I'm reminded of what you said in Deuteronomy 10 about these commands are to, we are to be concerned about your commands because you're commanding them for our good. You're commanding these things for our flourishing, for our joy, for our progress in the faith, for our closeness and intimacy with Christ. And Lord, we want all of these things. So Lord, would you use this feeble attempt to underscore the centrality of your church in our lives, to advance your mission, to grow your people, and to cause us to follow you and obey you and love you and uh, be assured that we belong to you by our membership in and engagement with the local church. So, Lord, we commit this truth to you and pray that you would work it deep into the marrow of our souls and down deep into our lives for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.